True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again everyone, and welcome to our 29th case together. I got asked the other day why I specify that, and the answer is so that I can keep track mainly. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory, and all the new episodes will automatically download for you. You can listen to the new episodes through the website too, so go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all the episodes are at the base of the home screen. I just want to extend a massive thank you to Phil who has now taken over the running of the site off my hands. The episodes are also now available on YouTube on the True Crime Fix channel so please, if you enjoy the show spread the word as far as possible. As the whole of the UK is on lockdown, I thought I would take this time to tackle one of my longer cases so that I didn't have to do it in two parts. The story today, we are jetting off to Asia, and in particular the Philippines, to a case which I actually stumbled upon accidentally. I was watching a documentary on the Kotal case on YouTube and this case automatically followed in the form of another documentary shot by one of the American broadcasters. As I watched it, the more engrossed I was with the deception of one person and the dedication of our victim's mum to get to the crux of the problem with the Asian police force which, for one reason or another, just wanted to close the case. The background research for this case has been done using the book For the Love of My Son by Margaret Davis, which, as you can probably imagine, has some fitting personal tributes which fits in with this podcast. Before we go on, I just want to tell you a little story that you may have heard before and almost fits the moral of this story perfectly. You will understand why later in the case. Once upon a time, in a village, there lived a farmer with a wife. They were very poor. They had nothing but a little farm, where they grew vegetables that they could eat. However, he managed to save a little money each time he sold vegetables from his farm. Eventually, he saved up enough money to buy a goose. He took it home and made a nest for it to lay its eggs. The goose would produce eggs which he could use for selling, eating and making bread, thought the farmer. The next morning, 
when he went to gather some eggs for breakfast. He lifted the goose and to his surprise, the goose had laid a golden egg. The next morning, he found another egg, and the next, and the next. Slowly and steadily, the farmer and his wife were becoming richer and richer. Just think if we could have all the golden eggs that are inside the goose, we could be richer faster, said the greedy wife. You are right, we would not have to wait for the goose to lay an egg every day, replied the farmer greedily. The next day, the farmer went to the goose quietly and picked her up carefully. He was hiding the knife in his pocket. The couple killed the goose and cut her open, only to find that she was just like every other goose. She had no golden eggs inside her at all, and they had no more golden eggs. Alas, now the farmer and his wife had lost the goose, and they would never get a golden egg again. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of Stephen Alston Davis. A word of note, some people's names in this case may have been changed to protect the innocent. Stephen was born on the 27th of March 1970, in the town of Skegness, which is in Lincolnshire and situated on the east coast of England. He was the first child born to Joe and Margaret. Everyone in the UK knows that Skegness is only really famous for one thing, and that is being the home for the first Butlin's Holiday Park. Sir Billy Butlin was a South African-born entrepreneur who had a bad experience at a bed and breakfast on Barry Island in South Wales. The owner locked him out of the bed and breakfast between meals, which was custom for the time. Therefore, he envisioned a holiday park where residents were welcome all the time and often encouraged to stay on the park. On the 11th of April 1936, which was Maundy Thursday in the Christian calendar, the first Butlins holiday park opened near the seaside town of Skegness. The cost for a week's stay full board in 1936 ranged between 35 shillings and £3, or in today's money, about £167. The number of parks expanded over time, but as air travel became easier and cheaper, the British holiday was less appealing and there are now only three parks remaining today, Bognor, Minehead and Skegness. Anyway, the reason I say all of this is that Stephen's dad Joe was a maintenance fitter at Butlin's in Skegness when he and Margaret met. In the following years, the family expanded with his sisters, Catherine and Lucy, being born. Whilst raised in a family, Margaret studied at Knight College to become a social worker, and when the children were old enough to go to school, she got herself a job as a social care manager at a home for the elderly. As a young child, Stephen was mischievous and enjoyed playing the fool at school. 
Margaret remembered the first day that Stephen went to school, and she asked the teacher how he had got on. The teacher replied, he will get on just fine as long as he stops trying to make the other children laugh. Joe and Margaret got married in 1979 and moved the 81 miles back to the city of Nottingham where they were able to afford a bigger house. Life was looking good for the family. That was until the 25th of March 1984 where Stephen's father Joe had a major motorcycle accident and was left with severe brain damage. Margaret for the first few months kept vigil at her husband's bedside, arriving early in the evening and staying with him until morning. She had to start working part-time due to the work, home life, hospital balance, but stated this was where the children grew up very fast. Stephen, who was now 14, drew up a chore rotor to help his mother as much as possible around the house and he and the two girls kept to it without any complaint. The general rule was that he would look after the garden and the maintenance of the house whilst the girls kept it clean and tidy. Sadly, two years after the accident, Joe succumbed to his injuries and passed away in hospital. The first thing that Stephen said to his mum, even through his own grief, was, I'm the man of the family now, mum. You can rely on me. And he stuck to his word, being strong for his mother during the difficult times. Margaret stated, together we learnt the skills of survival, resilience and the importance of supporting each other. A few years later, with the blessing of her family, Margaret started dating one of Joe's former work colleagues, Alan, who was more than happy to become the stepfather to the three children. Stephen had now matured and became very studious. He was not a sporty person and preferred to spend time with his family rather than his friends. He was described by many as having a sensible attitude and had a particularly caring attitude towards his younger sisters. Margaret said that he did not keep secrets from her in the way that he knew that his sisters did, and they openly spoke about everything. As Stephen grew older, he became very good at computer programming, and when he left college, he got a job developing software. At this time, he was still living at home and he was glued to his computer. Margaret stated that sometimes she was worried that he was missing out on his adolescence with the amount of time that he would spend working when he should have been socialising and meeting girls at that age. Margaret worried that his support for her was holding him back but Stephen reassured her saying, I'm happy mum, stop fussing. Almost to allay her fears, he joined the local army cadets and youth club. This meant that he would spend more time socialising and getting involved in fundraising activities. Trying to avoid sounding chauvinistic, but quoting directly from the family, as Alan took on more of the roles that were expected of the adult male of the family, 
this meant that Stephen's concerns for his mother and sisters decreased. Alan and Stephen bonded straight away, and the pair used to go speed driving together on a local track. Stephen did eventually meet a girl, and at the age of 19, he became engaged to her. But at the time, she was the polar opposite of what he was looking for. She was a student who was more interested in the party lifestyle than establishing a career for herself, and their engagement did not last very long, and Stephen was heartbroken. He now had a job in Nottingham working with computers, and at the age of 21, he was offered a lucrative job in Hong Kong. At the time, Hong Kong was still a British colony, a tenure which would last 156 years before being handed back to China at midnight on the 1st of July 1997. But a number of businesses were therefore recruiting from the UK. They offered to triple Stephen's salary for the relocation. All of his family encouraged him to take it. After the years of support that he had offered them following the death of his father, they saw it as an opportunity for him to have a fresh start. Stephen was still heartbroken over the breaking off of the engagement and his mother convinced him that despite the distance, it would be good for him. The flight non-stop is 12 hours from the UK. The job was a chief technology officer of a company based out of Kowloon. He was working on the new Hong Kong International Airport installing all of the new computer terminals and installing the software which was a complex job ready for the opening in 1998. He was staying in a tiny flat 50 floors up and when he initially got to Hong Kong because it was expensive he was spending all of his disposable income on partying with the other young workers. Over time Stephen and his friends learnt that it was cheaper to go partying in the Philippines, which was only a two-hour journey from their base. The Philippine peso exchange rate is about 90 to the pound, even back then. Stephen got a new hobby, flying ultralight aircraft out of a flying club based out of Angeles City, and as a result, he and his associates would regularly spend the weekend in Angeles City which is only a short plane ride from Hong Kong. Angeles City is known as the sex capital of the Philippines. It is also known for its high concentration of bars and casinos. Perfect for wealthy men to go off and act like a playboy for the weekend. This is where Stephen met Evelyn. Evelyn Borhall was born and raised in the small village of Vassar on the island of Duram Samar and was daughter to Sioni Borhol and Marcelino Borhol. Duram Samar is an isolated island which is only accessible by boat. The majority of the people on the island live below the poverty line which means that in the majority of the villages there is no running water, very little electricity and poor sanitation to a lot of the huts that people call homes. 
Evelyn started working at a very young age and did not have much of an education. She would help her family out by sewing and stitching items for the family to sell for a very meagre income. Even at a very young age, she dreamt of being a bar girl and meeting a wealthy westerner who would take her away from the life that she was destined for. Evelyn left home at the age of 13 and took the two-day journey by boat and bus to Angeles City. Despite the seedy nature of the place, unfortunately it's the only way for young girls to earn a reasonable wage so that they can provide for their families back home. Girls often lie about their age to get work, and the ID checks are not as stringent as they are in the Western world. In some of the bars, they are employing girls as young as the age of 12 to entertain the patrons of the bar. The girls earn about 60 pesos or just under a pound a night for dancing to cheesy western pop which is played over the sound systems. They are, however, paid 300 pesos if they have sex with a customer. If a girl is a virgin or a cherry girl, then the bar owner would ask for a premium. The bar owners, on average, would take 80% of the amount that was charged to the customer. Evelyn spoke to her sister Gina on a regular basis, saying how much she hated the life and was being forced into having sex. She gained a drug habit as it was her only coping mechanism to what she was having to do every day. The only way out of the bar life was for the girls to meet a wealthy man who would buy them out of that life. Evelyn's dream was about to come true. It was love at first sight for Stephen. He paid to take her out for the night and then paid the bar owner 30,000 pesos for her freedom. He was smitten with her. She had told him she was 21 and on a trip to Hong Kong in 1997, Evelyn met Margaret for the first time. According to Stephen, Evelyn was only six years younger than him, with her being 21 and him being 26, nearly 27 at the time. Margaret described her as quiet and polite, and therefore, with the acceptance of his family, on the same trip, Stephen and Evelyn got married on the 20th of March 1997. Stephen bought Evelyn a beautiful white trouser suit which cost about £500 for her to get married in. Due to the fact that Evelyn had never been to school and was in fact illiterate, the ceremony took longer than it should have done with Evelyn not being able to read her vows. Margaret expressed concern, as did some of his work colleagues, that he had committed to this relationship and marriage because of the heartbreak of his previous engagement breaking down. He knew that he was going to be the breadwinner, therefore he felt safe in the relationship, not in a controlling way, but knew that Evelyn did not want to go back to the bar life, so therefore she would never dump him. Stephen and Evelyn invited Margaret and Alan on their honeymoon to Puerto Galera. 
it was there that Margaret started noticing signs in the relationship that concerned her. For example, one night when going for dinner, Stephen would try and hold Evelyn's hand and she would just dismiss him. But when there was photographs involved, she was always over the top with her affection. The concern was that she was never natural. Margaret was aware that Stephen had met Evelyn in a bar and was concerned that she was only after her son's wealth. A short while after, Stephen finally became a father, firstly to Jessica and then Joshua was born two years later. The family moved to Angeles City, leaving Hong Kong behind them, the city where it had all began for the couple, only this time Evelyn was there in the upmarket area. Stephen had set up his own software company and was working really hard, sometimes 24 hours a day. He was definitely wealthy compared to his friends back home and gave Evelyn an allowance every month to allow her to be a stay-at-home mum while still providing for her family. Stephen was bringing home about £60,000 a year and out of that, he was giving Evelyn a monthly allowance of £1,000 a month. Stephen also employed maids to help her with the cleaning and also employed Evelyn's sister Gina, who had recently got married, as a nanny to the children. As a result, Evelyn became very lazy, becoming a lady of leisure around the house, while Stephen was working hard. Stephen took the approach, though, that Evelyn was his princess, and what she wanted, she got. Her family back home even noticed a difference. Her aunt, Amelda, said she now had an air of being rich and would always talk about money, looking down her nose at her less well-off family members. Stephen's generosity did not end there, as he started sending significant amounts of money to her parents as well. Through his generosity, they managed to build the only brick house in the village as well as purchasing a fishing boat, which meant that they could start their own business. He also paid for their fares to come and visit them on a regular basis, allowing them to live in luxury as long as they wanted and how often they wanted. On a number of occasions, they stayed for weeks at a time. When they left, there would always be things going missing from around the house things like electrical items for the new house. Evelyn would dismiss this as acceptable and always convince Stephen he had the money to replace it. On a visit in 2001, Margaret and Alan noticed Evelyn was becoming very distant. She would always be seen texting someone or making private phone calls out of earshot. Alan instantly believed that his daughter-in-law was having an affair. Evelyn also changed her demeanour around Stephen too, becoming frequently more angry at him for no apparent reason. Her sister Gina also confronted Evelyn about the rumours, and Evelyn admitted that she did have a lover, and that Stephen and her were going through a rocky patch. 
Evelyn admitted that it was a local security guard who was only on £1,000 a year, the same money as Stephen was giving her a month. Stephen himself was starting to grow increasingly suspicious of Evelyn. Money was going missing out of the apartment. He had also given Evelyn the fees for Jessica to go to a private nursery school, but one day, when he went to take her to school himself, the school did not even know who she was, causing him great embarrassment. The final straw for Stephen was when Evelyn pawned her wedding ring to purchase her lover a motorcycle. Stephen needed a break and started going out in the country's capital, Manila, with his single work colleagues at the weekends. He would say that he was away on business, but he would stay at his business partner's property where they would host pool parties. Stephen, despite everything, wanted his marriage to work. He still loved Evelyn at the end of the day. He issued Evelyn with an ultimatum. Give the missing money back and get a job. Go to college or the marriage would be over. Evelyn will be back where she started, a prostitute in a bar. By January 2002, nothing had changed, so Stephen stopped Evelyn's allowance, which in turn meant that she could not provide for the increasing web of people who were depending on her. On the 17th of July 2002, Stephen and his business partner Mike Dunn worked until around 10 o'clock in the evening at the principal office of JC Software in Makati City, which is a suburb of Manila. At around 10.45pm, they headed to their rented apartment. Stephen proceeded to his room to do some work, then went to sleep. At around 11.30pm, Mike went to the airport to collect his girlfriend Jennifer, who was arriving from Hong Kong. Mike and Jennifer returned to the apartment at 1 o'clock in the morning of July the 18th, 2002. They went to bed a short moment thereafter. At around 2 o'clock in the morning, Jennifer told Mike that a person seemed to be moving and flashing a light outside their room. Suspecting that person outside the room to be Stephen, and that he was just trying to play a practical joke on them, Mike inquired, What are you doing tonight? Instead of Stephen answering back, three men with drawn handguns suddenly entered their room. One of the men, whose gun was aimed at Mike, in Filipino asked, Ituba, Ituba. Is this him? A second man grabbed Jennifer by the hand and locked her inside Mike's bathroom. After an obvious negative identification, the men left taking Mike's keys, wallet and mobile phone and proceeded to Stephen's room. Upon seeing the sleeping Stephen, the first man fired four consecutive shots at his body. The three men hurriedly left the house. After he was sure that the gunmen were no longer inside the apartment, Mike immediately went to Stephen's room. There, 
Mike saw the lifeless body of Stephen. After checking Stephen's pulse, Mike administered CPR on him, but there was no response. As he had his phone taken, Mike went to the neighbouring house to call the Philippine National Police, who arrived at the scene. Mike apparently blurting out, I know it's that fucking bitch. An ambulance took Stephen's body to the Makati Medical Centre, where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Mike made numerous attempts to reach Evelyn by phone immediately after the incident, but his efforts were all in vain. Finally, he was able to contact her through her mobile phone at around 6 o'clock in the morning, notifying her about the killing of her husband. The autopsy of Stephen was conducted on the afternoon of July the 18th at the National Bureau of Investigation. The coroner found that Stephen sustained four gunshot wounds which entered his chest and exited at the back of his left upper arm, just below the shoulder. Just as a point of reference, the Philippines is eight hours ahead of the United Kingdom. The 18th of July 2002 was just like any other day in the town of Bingham in Nottinghamshire. Margaret and Alan had spent the morning gardening and then in the afternoon Stephen's sister Lucy and her son Joseph came over. In the evening, Margaret had started to doze off on the sofa when her phone rang. Is that Margaret Davis? The voice on the other end said. It's Mike, Stephen's friend. It's Steve. He's had an accident. He's dead, Margaret. And then the phone cut out. Margaret and Alan tried to get hold of Evelyn, but realised that they did not either have her mobile number or the couple's landline number. Margaret urgently called the Foreign Office and made arrangements to fly out to the Philippines the following day. When Stephen's mum and stepfather arrived in the Philippines, they headed straight to Angeles City, which is a three-hour taxi drive from the airport. They met up with four men at the hotel. Mike Dunn, who was Canadian and the business partner of Stephen. The other three were his colleague Brian, a friend from the flying school, another Stephen, and a Filipino security guard who had been hired to keep an eye on them as they still did not know if any of them were still at target. Margaret and Alan checked into the room and went upstairs with the four men. The three colleagues went into the room with Margaret and Alan whilst the security guard watched the door. Mike poured everyone a drink and Margaret asked him what had happened. Mike told how he and Stephen Davis had spent the weekend working from Angeles City before driving to the main Makati City office in the suburbs of Manila on Monday morning. Both men worked solidly on a project then until Wednesday night. As they were both exhausted, they decided to rent a DVD and get a takeaway pizza to eat at home. Then he described the events as I've previously just laid out. Margaret said to Mike, how do you think they got in? 
Mike suggested that they could have picked the lock, but then remembered that Stephen had said that he had lost his keys a few days earlier. Margaret asked Mike if he had been able to speak to Evelyn as she had not spoken to her. Mike replied that he had tried soon after, but got no answer. He then stated, Margaret, I've got to say that Steve and Evelyn were not getting on too well recently. There were household bills which had not been paid, and I was really worried that they did not have enough food to feed the children. He then said, I don't feel comfortable saying this, but I feel that she may know something. They all agreed to let the police do their job and retired for the night as Margaret and Alan were going to view Stephen's body at the funeral parlour the following morning. The next morning was overcast and humid. Stephen's colleague Brian arrived at the hotel as it had been arranged the night before. He took them to Galang Funeral Home Chapel on the outskirts of Angeles City. As Margaret and Alan walked through the door, they were greeted by Stephen's three-year-old daughter, Jessica. Margaret went over and looked at the body of her son, quietly praying that this had all just been a bad dream and he would wake up at any moment. Wake up, Dada. Nana is here now. You can wake up. Jessica's voice brought her back to reality. Evelyn stood at the back all of this time, watching Stephen's mum say goodbye to her son. Margaret went and sat in a pew next to Evelyn, but she did not acknowledge Margaret's presence. Margaret attempted to offer her condolences, but again nothing. She inquired whether Evelyn had spoken to the police but there was still no response. Margaret then said that she thought it was rather unusual that Stephen's body was ready to view less than three days after he had been murdered and no tests had been done. Evelyn finally offered up that she wanted him to be near her home. Although Manila and Angeles City were only 60 miles apart, because of the road networks around the Philippines, that journey would have taken nearly three and a half hours. Margaret went over to Stephen's coffin again and looked at the cards that had been sent to him. They were from the girls who worked in the office, the Angeles City Flying Club, the Roadhouse Bar where he used to frequent, but she found it strange that there was nothing from Evelyn or her family. Evelyn came up beside her and asked her, Have you seen Mike? Finding this a strange question, Margaret replied, Why? He was there, ma'am. I was thinking he may recognise the killer. The men were in the house for 20 minutes, ma'am. I think Mike may have seen the man who did this thing. Margaret was taken aback a little bit, How did she know they'd only been in the house for 20 minutes? Has she been told this by the police? Why was she asking had she seen Mike when her husband was laying in a coffin in front of them? Margaret replied, I haven't seen Mike yet, Eve. 
All I know is that my son has been murdered and I don't know how or why. Putting her arm around Evelyn, she said, We're in this together. We're on the same side. The most important thing is to make sure that the children are okay. What about you? Have you got any money? No, ma'am. I have nothing. I cannot get money from the bank and I must buy food and things for my kids. My landlady, she wants me to move out. She's not happy with me now. Margaret gave her some cash and reassured her that everything would be alright. Over the next few days, Margaret and Alan went to see Stephen several times at the funeral home. They kept calling Evelyn in the week, asking her if they could come by the house and see the children. Each time she had an excuse. Her parents and her sister were there, or she was too busy, or the children were out playing with friends. One evening, Margaret called the house and Jessica answered the phone, excitedly saying, I'm eating chicken dinner, Nana. Margaret could hear what sounded like the noise of a party and laughter going on in the flat. Evelyn, when she eventually picked up the phone, sounded very happy and Margaret suspected that she was either drunk or on drugs. She admitted that she was having a wake for Stephen with friends and family and they were eating food that had been paid for with Margaret's money. It's my custom, she said. Margaret was slightly disappointed that she and Alan had not been invited. The next day, Margaret went to visit with Stephen and Evelyn's landlady. Margaret offered to pay her a year's rent in advance, as the children needed somewhere decent to live. But the landlady refused, saying, That house is full of noisy people, ma'am. Parties all the time. Alcohol and drugs, I think. Mr. Steve, when he went to Makati and his wife, she has so many friends and so many men, but other tenants are not happy. It was then that Margaret wondered whether her son really knew what was going on, or whether this was the reason that he was always so angry. His house was overrun with strangers when he wasn't there. A couple of days later, after having a sick feeling of cabin fever, staying in the hotel, Margaret and Alan decided that they would go for a stroll around Angeles City. Without realising it, they found themselves outside the very bar that Stephen and Evelyn first met in. They had been there a few times before with Stephen, and they liked the place. They chatted to the girls at the bar a number of times. The girls who worked there used to call Stephen the computer because he would only go there to work or chat with his mates. He was never interested in any of the other girls. As they both sat down, the owner of the bar came over to them and told them that the drinks were on the house. I'm sorry for your loss, Stephen was a good man. They spent the evening reminiscing about what Stephen had been like as a man. Margaret said that the first time she'd heard that he had met somebody in a bar 
She suspected it was someone who had been pulling pints, like the barmaids at home. This is where the family learnt a lot more about Evelyn. They believed that Stephen had been engaged to forget his former fiance, but they learnt that when they first met, Evelyn was weak and ill and that he had taken her to buy medicine. It had taken her several months to recover and Evelyn had become Stephen's pet project and he started lavishing her with gifts, buying her jewellery, clothes, shoes and presents and taking her family gifts. He really spoilt her. Margaret and Alan continued to try and contact Evelyn, leaving messages several times a day. She eventually called back and asked if they could meet in a bar in a dodgy area late at night. Not feeling safe with this idea, Margaret pleaded tiredness and eventually they agreed to meet at the funeral parlour that afternoon. As Margaret was now wary, she took Brian along as well. On the journey over, he told them how he had heard from a work colleague that Evelyn had been on the radio the previous day appealing for legal advice. She was hoping that someone would help her to claim against the business for Stephen's shares. She had been informed that Margaret was Stephen's beneficiary and that if she wanted any money, she was going to have to go through her. Evelyn was in the funeral home and her and Margaret stood side by side at Stephen's casket. This is the most expensive casket, ma'am. I wanted to have the best for Stephen. Then she asked Margaret about Mike again. Margaret asked, What do you think happened, Evelyn? Me, ma'am? I don't know. Me and Stephen, we were very happy. Last weekend, we had fun with the kids, and then Stephen kissed me before he went to Makati. First thing I knew was when the police called me. Margaret was suspicious because this was contrary to what Mike had told her about calling Evelyn the night that Stephen had been killed. Ten days after Stephen was killed, in the early hours of Sunday the 28th of July, there was a loud bang at the hotel room of Margaret and Alan. The three Filipino men at the door identified themselves as police officers from Makati City and they wanted to ask a few questions. Margaret and Alan told them what they knew, but also posed the following points to the police. Firstly, they informed them that Evelyn had been taking Stephen's money. Then they raised the point about the debit card not having worked the day before he died. Thirdly, the gunman used a key to get into the house. The question is, how did they get it? They also raised the point that Mike could not contact Evelyn for several hours the morning after Stephen's death. Margaret also raised the fact that Evelyn had not contacted her at all in the aftermath of Stephen's death and it was now difficult to get in touch with her even though they were in the Philippines. Finally, she also raised a concern that when she had had a conversation with Evelyn at the funeral parlour, Evelyn was able to tell Margaret that the gunman had been in the house for 20 minutes, but the police had not told her this. The funeral took place on the 29th of July, 
and Stephen was cremated eventually on the 13th of August and the ashes were given to Margaret after she had agreed to pay for the funeral. A few days later, Margaret and Alan decided to check out of the hotel in Angeles City and check into a budget hotel in Makati. Whilst they were there, they decided to pay the police headquarters a visit so that they could find out any updates on the case. The investigation was being led by Reynaldo Hernandez, one of the men who had visited them a couple of days earlier. Margaret asked if there was any update on her son's murder. We have no new information, ma'am, but we are hoping for some to come up soon. The situation is ongoing. Have you interviewed my son's wife? She asked. No, that would be unusual, Officer Hernandez responded. Unusual, Margaret questioned. We know that you have a photo fit picture of the suspect, but can we ask how you are using it? Mike was very traumatised the day he did the photo fit. I worry that it may not be very accurate, but we are looking into it, Officer Hernandez responded. When we saw you in Angeles City, Officer, I explained that I felt that there was some very worrying aspects to the murder and it seemed as if Stephen's wife could be very helpful to you in clarifying some of these questions. Officer Hernandez responded, It is possible, ma'am, but we would have to wait for her to make a complaint. It is our legal system here in the Philippines which requires a person to be an injured party and for that person to make representations to the police for investigations to take place. I'm sorry to say that it should be the next of kin which is the wife. I expect that she would do it at any moment, but she is far too upset at the moment. The police explained to Margaret and Alan that they had their suspicions as well, because she was wearing black when she came to view Stephen's body, and she also mentioned that Stephen had an insurance policy and a house in England, which the police identified as a strange thing for a Filipino widow to say. Margaret asked, what happens if the wife, for her own reasons, does not want to come forward to the police station? Can you bring her in for questioning? Officer Hernandez responded, only if we have reason to do so. If we bring someone in and cannot make a case against them, we are not permitted to interview them again, even if new evidence comes up. At the moment, there is no evidence against Mrs. Davis. The case looks to us like it was a robbery gone wrong. Margaret decided that because she was unaware of what her rights were in the Philippines, she needed to employ a lawyer. The lawyer that she employed was called Christian Aguera, and when she next visited the police station, she found out that if she could draw up an affidavit with all the information that she knew about the circumstances leading up to Stephen's death, then she could be considered the complainant. Margaret decided that she needed to take matters into her own hands, so she went out and bought a pad of A3-sized paper, marker pens, 
and some drawing pins. She also purchased a tape recorder and a microphone and would use the hotel room as her centre of operations for the next few weeks as she went about investigating her own son's passing. On the three bits of paper she wrote Sheet 1 Evelyn Suspicious Things Wore black to identify the body Very keen to find out what Mike saw Is pregnant already Had one secret abortion This was information that she had recently shared Was taking money from Stephen Was arguing with Stephen Sheet 2 was titled What We Need to Know Whose baby is it? Where were you at the time of the murder? Why was she unobtainable the next morning? What is her bank account information? Where was the money going? Who were the people who used to come to Steve's house when he was away? Who were the three gunmen? Sheet 3 was titled Stephen Questions. Was he in trouble, business-wise? What happened to his door key? Why couldn't he use his ATM card to get pizza? Who tried to use the ATM card the day after he died? A recent bank statement had revealed that someone had tried and failed to withdraw money the day after Stephen had died. Had something happened between him and Evelyn recently? Margaret completed the affidavit and her solicitor signed it. She had to take it to a photocopy shop because the photocopier in the police station had broken but once she submitted it she was now the complainant. Once the affidavit was signed there was another issue. The police department did not have enough money to fund the investigation. Margaret had to pay £120 to the officer in order to get the investigation off the ground so that he had fuel money to get from Makati City to Angeles City. The police investigation was still moving very slowly, so Margaret decided to hire her own investigators. She asked one of Stephen's colleagues, Brian, for some advice. He suggested that they speak to one of Stephen's other colleagues who went by the name of Paco. Paco was a local who knew a lot of people around the city. The first thing that he was able to confirm was that Evelyn was still in a relationship with a Filipino security guard. The next day, Paco arrived at the hotel in Makati City. With him was another one of the workforce from Stephen's office, Miguel, as well as two other people, husband and wife, Jose and Juliana. Jose and Juliana lived in a run-down flat near Stephen's flat. According to Juliana, Evelyn had been saying that she was very worried that Stephen wanted to divorce and that she had said, I quote, Better husband dead than marry another woman 
and give new woman her money. They agreed to do surveillance on the property that Evelyn lived in. Margaret gave them enough money to hire a car and purchase a camera. They were instructed to report back daily and where possible provide suspects names, addresses and contact telephone numbers. The next job for Margaret and Alan was the safety of the children but we'll move on to that a bit later. Within 24 hours they received a response from Jose. He had spoken to Rosario Mabanglo, Evelyn's aunt, and she was willing to divulge many things for a price. Margaret called Officer Hernandez and told him that she had a witness who was willing to talk. Hernandez said that they would interview her if they could get her from Angeles to Makati. Margaret made arrangements with Jose and Juliana to bring Rosario with them to a hotel in Angeles City and Alan and Margaret made their way to them. Margaret, armed with a voice recorder, went to meet with Rosario and Jose acted as translator. Rosario divulged that she often looked after Jessica whilst Evelyn went to meet with her boyfriend whose name was Arnold Adore. He too was married, but his wife had left him over the relationship with Evelyn. Rosario told how Evelyn would always be buying Adore expensive gifts, which she paid for out of Stephen's money. Adore had a reputation of being a bad man. Evelyn's sister Gina had fallen out with Evelyn because she believed that she had a plot to kill Stephen. This information had come through her husband, Robin, who used to work security with Adore. Margaret could feel herself getting angry at all of these people who knew that there was a plot to kill her son, but no one thought to warn him. Margaret asked her to go to the police, but she refused. Later that night, the recording was typed up verbatim to give to the police as evidence. The following day, they turned up at Evelyn's house unannounced. They were able to see the children for a bit, but Evelyn made herself scarce very soon after they arrived. When Margaret was searching through Stephen's study for the share certificates, she came across Stephen and Evelyn's marriage certificate. The name on the certificate was Denita Talagologon, and her birthday was different to Evelyn's, the 10th of January 1977. They later learned that Evelyn had used one of her sister's details to legally marry Stephen back in 1997 because she was under the legal age for marriage. Contrary to what she had told Stephen, she was only 17 when they got married, which meant that she was only 14 when they first met. Did Stephen know that he had been dating a minor? The second piece of information that they received was from a security camera on the property which they handed over to the police. It didn't take long for the police to identify one of the men entering the property. It was Robin Butas, the husband of Evelyn's sister Gina. 
The police also interviewed the landlady and the neighbours who claimed that they often saw Evelyn riding off on the back of a motorcycle. Again, Margaret asked Jose to see if Evelyn's aunt would testify and even said that she would provide more money if necessary. The aunt arrived the following day and spent six hours giving evidence in her native tongue. But at the end of the interview, Officer Hernandez stated that all of the information was circumstantial and not enough to bring Evelyn in for questioning. On the 15th of August, however, there was another breakthrough as Jose reported back that he had liaised with the police. Apparently, one of the photos which they had taken whilst they were conducting surveillance outside Evelyn's house closely resembled the photo fit that Mike had drawn up. According to sources, this man was a security guard at the airbase. When the photo was shown to Mike, he confirmed that the man was one of the gunmen. His name was Alex Dagami. Dagami was arrested and transported to the police station at Angeles City. On the same day, Mike was sitting in his office waiting for news from the police and whether he needed to go over and identify the suspect. The Angeles office was directly opposite the entrance to the local police station. When they brought Dagami in, he spotted the man and yelled out, That's the bastard that killed my friend! Paco followed him out of the office as he was distraught and heading towards the police station. When Mike confronted Dagami, the latter merely said coldly, I do not know this man. Whilst Mike was being calmed down in the waiting area, the man's supervisor walked in to find out why his subordinate had been arrested. Mike went crazy again. That's him, he screamed. That's the other one. This is the man who put the gun to my head. Are you sure, Paco said to him. Definitely, Mike replied. I recognise those eyes. The police failed to act, however, and deeming Mike to be too emotional, allowed the supervisor to return to work. Mike spent the rest of the afternoon convincing the police to go back to the airbase and arrest him. They finally agreed to do so the following day, after Mike had slept on it. When they arrived at the airbase, miraculously, the man's service pistol that he had had the day before had gone missing. The man was arrested on suspicion of murder and taken back to the police station. Who is this man, I hear you ask? His name was Arnold Adore, the man who had been identified as Evelyn's lover. The following day, both men were formally charged with murder in the first degree. A crime which, if found guilty, they would face 40 years in prison without parole. Shortly after, the pair were charged and upon their next visit to the Makati police station, Officer Hernandez pulled Alan and Margaret to one side. I think you should leave, ma'am, 
in a tone which made them know he was not joking. The family of Dagami are very angry that you accuse him and I worry that you may not be safe. You are the person who will be the complainant about these two men. You will need to be at the trial, but if you are killed, you cannot do this. Then they could go free. Stephen's mum said that she thought the police knew more than they were letting on, so took the threat seriously. Margaret again asked if they had enough information to bring Evelyn in for questioning, as the men must have acted upon direction. Hernandez again disagreed and stated to Margaret that she should be happy that they had two people in custody for Stephen's murder. They also received the same warning from the British Embassy soon after. They revealed that the two men used to be officers in the drug squad and were now security guards. Spelling it out for them, the ambassador said, This means several things. First, the police are protective of people that they regard as insiders. Secondly, the accused men know people who have access to licensed firearms. And thirdly, if they are involved in the drug underworld, they will almost certainly have association with some highly undesirable characters. They know what you are up to, and they know that you are digging for further information and these people will stop at nothing to prevent you doing so. So arrangements were made for them to fly from Manila to Heathrow and take Jessica with them. So to take a back step here and just explain about the children. Margaret and Alan were worried about the neglect that both Jessica and Josh were receiving from their mum. They managed to make a payment to Evelyn in order for her to sign permission for Jessica to obtain a British passport and were looking after her following a holiday to another part of the Philippines. As they now had the passport, they believed that the safest thing to do was to take Jessica with them, not entirely with Evelyn's permission, and get Joshua at a later date. So they boarded the plane with Jessica as well, and Stephen's ashes in Margaret's hand luggage. Once home, Margaret kept in contact with Juliana and Jose, who continued to do her investigation from Angeles City. They found out that Joshua was now living with Evelyn's mum and dad in Vasur, the small remote village that Evelyn was from in Duram Samar. Slowly, through email conversations with Juliana, Margaret was starting to get a picture of what was going on. Gina's husband had gone on the run and all indication was that he was the third gunman. A lot of Evelyn's family were now in bad health and were in desperate need of money for medication. Evelyn's family were also angry with Evelyn about what happened to Stephen and now the golden goose was dead leaving them with nothing. One night Juliana revealed that Rosario had reached out to her and said that they would give Joshua to Margaret in exchange for 200,000 pesos, which in modern money 
is £3,188, but the exchange rate in 2002 meant that the amount was slightly less. I'm not going to go into the full trials and tribulations that Margaret went through, for we will still be here when it's time to release episode 35, but I'll give you a brief version. Margaret continued to use Juliana as a go-between with Evelyn's family. The impression that Evelyn's family had was that as Margaret and Alan were Westerners, they had an endless supply of funds to keep paying them. In reality, the whole ordeal was bankrupting them. They had to remortgage their house to continue paying for the handouts that Evelyn's family wanted, but all they wanted was to guarantee that Joshua was safe. He was starting to develop ailments from the environment that he was now in, and his other grandparents were unable to afford to look after him. As the trial of Adore and Dagami was approaching, intimidation tactics were being played on the key witnesses. Despite the fact that Evelyn had given permission for Margaret to take Jessica on holiday, and then never returned her calls when it came to giving her back, Through her lawyer, she had lodged a complaint of kidnapping. Therefore, there was an arrest warrant should Margaret return to the Philippines. As mentioned earlier, she was the complainant in the murder charges. Then there was Mike. As he could identify both gunmen, he was also subject to death threats. Juliana, for all the legwork she was doing for Margaret, also had a number of death threats, as well as Evelyn and three Filipino men turning up at her door looking for her. The police now also had three affidavits which linked Evelyn to Adore, one from Rosario, one from the maid who worked at Evelyn's apartment, and one from the neighbours. Through the embassy, the police had agreed to link her and Robin Butas to the case. But as Margaret was struggling to keep up with the constant demands for money, Rosario threatened to withdraw her evidence. Eventually, for the price of 50,000 pesos, or £793, Evelyn's father agreed to send Joshua to England with Jose, to be with Margaret and Alan. He arrived in the country on Jessica's fourth birthday. They had now received notification that the trial of Adore and Dagami would commence on the 12th of November 2002. But as there was still an arrest warrant out against her, Margaret could not travel to the country. She was warned by her Filipino lawyer that if she did not attend the scheduled date, then there was a possibility that the case could be struck out. At this hearing, it would also be determined whether Butas and Evelyn would be charged with a crime. Evelyn had been asked to attend the court three times on a voluntary basis, but had failed each time. There was now a warrant out for Butas's arrest, but the court deemed that there was still not enough evidence to charge Evelyn. By the start of 2003, 
there was still no trial date for Adore and Dagami. Margaret felt as though the Filipino legal system was going to fail them. Mike's girlfriend Jennifer was still to be interviewed by the police. She was the only native Tagalog speaker, so her evidence from that night was deemed crucial. But she was now scared due to the death threats that everyone was receiving. Not only that, but one of the other witnesses, the cleaner Aurora, had now gone into hiding herself, fearing for her life. Margaret too was still afraid that the arrest warrant was hanging over her. In February 2003, she was given an ultimatum by the presiding judge. If she failed to attend the next hearing, the case would be adjourned and Evelyn and Butas would not be added to the proceedings. The hearing was set for the 26th of March 2003. A further extension was granted as Butas was still on the run. He was eventually arrested on the 14th of June 2003. Evelyn had also fled and was now on the remote island of Palawan. Butas claimed he had nothing to do with the murder and in a statement blamed his cousin. The same day, Evelyn's father contacted Margaret's lawyer to say that Gina was ready to testify against Evelyn so that she could help her husband. Everything was starting to close in on Evelyn. At the end of June, Margaret had a text conversation with an unnamed informant in the Philippines. I quote, Informant, Gina wants to tell all the bad things Evelyn's planned to do to Sir Steve. Mama Rosario told Gina to tell the truth. She is the elder sister. Evelyn's father cannot sleep. He says Stephen's spirit is on his shoulders. Margaret, what would Gina say? Informant, that Evelyn told her that she and Arnold checked with a lawyer who said that she would get one million pesos if Stephen died. Margaret said, But Stephen gave Gina and her family money for food and medicine. Informant, Evelyn promised Gina more when Stephen was dead. I need money to feed Gina and her children. Gina was sad when Stephen died because he was humble and a good husband to Evelyn. Margaret said, you have done well. The informant, this I believe is a miracle for a sister to become a witness against a sister. Gina cries all the time and Evelyn's father is sick and his heart is heavy. Margaret, okay, I will send the money, but first Gina must testify. Tell her her heart will be free when she tells the truth and helps Stephen to rest. Apparently Butas was not comfortable in jail. He was in a cell next door to Adore, 
and was constantly being threatened by him. Butas refused to talk in fear of reprisal. For some reason, the police chose to interview him when Adore was present. At his arraignment, Butas pleaded not guilty. The lawyers argued that having Butas in the same place was a threat to his life as Adore was already up on a charge of murder one and what was another death on his conscience if it was to give him the chance of being free. At the end of July, they agreed to move him. It proved to be vital to the case as Butas gave a statement against Evelyn at his pre-trial hearing, turning him into a state witness. I quote, A week before Stephen was killed, Evelyn talked to Arnold Adore about having Stephen killed, since they were no longer getting along, so that Evelyn and Arnold could live together. I know Arnold Adore, since he is the branch manager of Silver Wings Security Agency, where I used to work as a security guard, and because he is Evelyn's lover. On the night of the 17th of July 2002, while my wife and I were resting in our room in Evelyn's house, Evelyn approached me and told me to come with her. I did not ask where we were going. I just put on my clothes and prepared to leave. Outside the house, I saw Arnold and Alexander Degami, who were waiting outside in a white car. They asked me to ride with them in the car where Arnold handed me a .38 revolver. Alexander, also a security guard, also had a handgun with him. At around 11pm, the four of us left Angeles City in the car and travelled to a place unknown to me. Arnold and Evelyn sat in the front and Alexander and myself in the back. After a few hours, we stopped in a street. Arnold and Alexander got out and told me to go with them. Evelyn stayed in the car. We walked towards the house. Arnold opened the gate of the house using a key that Evelyn had given him and opened the door of the house using another key. Once we entered the house, Arnold and Alexander drew their guns and made me very nervous because I could not understand what was going to happen. I followed them while they went up a flight of stairs. First Arnold, then Alexander, then me. When we reached the top of the stairs, Arnold told me to stay by the door, near the stairs, while Alexander opened a flashlight. They both entered a room. It was dark, I was confused, and I switched on the lights near the staircase. Alexander left the room and went towards another room, where he also called for Arnold. Both of them entered the second room, and after a few seconds I heard some gunshots and saw Stephen full of blood with his arms raised as well. Arnold was still pointing the gun at him. 
right after they left the room, we hurried down the stairs. We went back to the car and hurriedly left the place. While we were driving back to Angelis City, Arnold and Evelyn told me to keep quiet and not tell anybody about what I'd just witnessed. This confirmed that Evelyn was there. She sat calmly outside in the car whilst her husband had been murdered in his bed at her request. In November 2003, Arnold Adore and his co-accused Alexander Dugami stood trial in a Manila courthouse. They had been held for 14 months at this point and the trial would go on for another three months. The court heard the testimony of Mike Dunn, the maid Aurora and Evelyn's aunt Rosario. Margaret, through persistence, had managed to persuade Jack Straw to request a member of staff from the British consulate in Manila to attend every day of the trial and report back to London. She would no longer have to pay for information. In January 2004, Margaret learnt Evelyn had a new boyfriend and he was part of the New People's Army, a well-known and feared group. The MPA were formed in 1969 and were known to be the armed wing of the Filipino Communist Party. The group was deemed a terrorist group by the Philippines, the United States of America and the European Union. This is why the police have been so reluctant to interview Evelyn or arrest her without significant evidence. But this also meant that Margaret's life was at risk if she returned to the Philippines. Accompanied with that, due to the overcrowded jails, the Filipino government had reinstated hanging for the crimes which it considered most heinous. These were rape, drug-related crimes and kidnap. The one that it did not cover was murder. Therefore, the warrant out against Margaret would have seen her stand trial for a capital offence. Due to the way that the Filipino justice system works, the defence lawyer gave the evidence first and this finished in February 2004. It was now the turn of the prosecution and the evidence of Robin and Gina Butas. I've already given you the statement of Robin and Gina's went as follows. I quote, I am the older sister of Evelyn Davis, the wife of the deceased Stephen Davis, who was killed last 18th of July 2002. I first met Stephen Davis in 1998 when he was introduced to me by my sister Evelyn. During the time that Evelyn was pregnant in 1999, I stayed to assist her at their home until she gave birth. I went back and forth between the house and my relative's house. Last 2002, I learnt that Evelyn had a boyfriend in Angeles City named Arnold Adore. I went to see Evelyn and asked her if what I heard was true. She denied it at first. However, 
Last June, I heard from my relatives that she was having frequent fights with her husband, Stephen. When I heard this, I visited her to see how she was doing. During our long talk, she told me that she and Stephen were always fighting and that she was not given money for household expenses, even though his business was doing well. She also admitted to me that she had a relationship with Arnold Adore. As her sister, I advised her to sort out her problems with her husband. In the course of our conversation, Evelyn talked about her anger towards Stephen. She even revealed to me that she and Arnold Adore had plans to kill Stephen. When I asked her why, her answer was, so that they would be free to live together and share the wealth that Stephen would leave Evelyn. I scolded Evelyn and counselled her not to pursue her plan and that she said the same out of anger towards her husband. I just left after we talked. In August 2002, Arnold Adore dropped by our house. I was surprised when he informed us that Stephen was shot and killed inside a house in Makati City. We later went to the wake in Angeles City in order to mourn with Evelyn. While at the wake, I remember the things that Evelyn told me, that because of fear I just kept silent. I execute this statement for the reason that I am being bothered by my conscience and in order to help unravel the truth behind Stephen Davis's killing. No sooner had the statements been read out in court than the judge found both defendants guilty of murder. He sentenced both defendants to 30 years in prison and ordered them both to pay 50,000 pesos each, which is around £500 at the time, to Stephen's heirs. He also issued a warrant for Evelyn's arrest. Evelyn was arrested on the 17th of February 2004 in Zambales, 141 miles northwest of the capital Manila. She was transported back to Makati City Jail, where she was detained until her trial. By this time, she also had another baby who had been left with her new boyfriend's family. This baby was only two months old. At the arraignment, Evelyn pleaded not guilty and the judge stated that the trial would commence on the first open date after 60 days. In March, more good news came as Margaret's lawyer was able to confirm that no further warrants were out against her for her arrest. She was able to attend the trial. The trial date was set for the 25th of November 2004. The trial took place at the Manila Courthouse, the same place where it all began, where Margaret had signed and served the affidavit. Both the prosecutor and the defence lawyer gave brief evidence, but on the weight of the other trial, the result was inevitable. People of the Philippines versus Evelyn Davis. This is Sean's positive portion. Wherefore, 
This court hereby finds Evelyn Bohol E. Talawagan, also known as Evelyn Bohol, Evelyn Bohol Davis and Dianita Bohol Davis, guilty beyond reasonable doubt of murder qualified by treachery without any mitigating or aggravating circumstances and sentences her to suffer the penalty of reclusion perpetua. Reclusion perpetual, otherwise known as 40 years imprisonment without parole. As they left the courtroom, Margaret saw Evelyn being led into the holding cell and she asked for a brief moment with her. The documentary team caught this interaction. Stand up, Evelyn. Stand up and talk to me, Evelyn. <coughs> Take off those glasses. Look at me. Your daughter cries for you. Your son cries for you. They want their mummy. And you don't want them. I want Jesse and Joshua, you, you know that. You don't want them. No, you know that. I want Jesse and Joshua, you know that. But how, how, can you, how can you convince me of that? Whatever happened with Stephen, I don't know. You know that, Mum. I was there with Stephen. Everything what happened with Stephen, when he's dead, I was there. And I go to the hospital when I know when someone called me. And I was crying. It's your boyfriend. It was your boyfriend. I don't never get. I, I, I don't. I never have a relationship with him. Even if I die now, I have a perfect love. I have beautiful Jessica and I have beautiful Joshua in my life. <laughs> my life. Stephen is the best man in my life. You. He loved you, your children loved you, and look what's happened. I don't know anything. My daddy knows what is happening. You can see my eyes now if I'm telling lies. I wish, I wish, I wished it was a lie, Evelyn. If it was different, Evelyn, I wished it was different. I wished it was just you and the children. But it's not. I bring you some pictures. Okay. Is Mummy crying from Jessica? It's Joshua. That's the house with the blue gates. The house she lived with Stephen. And this one is Jessica, Mummy, and Nana. She's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. He's beautiful. Do you know, Evelyn? I don't even feel <coughs> angry at you. I just was so sorry. So sorry that we had some, in there you'll see, some happy days. We have this, and thanks for being here for you. Thank you for being here. All the family, because this was your family. I send you pictures of them growing up. They'll always know they have a very beautiful mummy. They'll always be your children. Take care of my kids. Hmm? Take care of Jesse. Take care of Jesse and Joseph. Always. 
So I'm going now then. Do you want to stand up and say goodbye to me, Evelyn? No? Okay. I'm going. No? Okay. Evelyn did appeal the conviction, but her appeal was denied. Margaret and Alan ended up selling up in Nottinghamshire and they went to live in Spain with the children. The whole ordeal had cost Margaret about £55,000 in having to pay for informants and looking after Evelyn's family. As she promised in that clip, Margaret writes to Evelyn once a year and these are a selection of the letters that have been sent over the past years. A letter in 2012 read, Evelyn, your two children, Jessica and Joshua, are growing into fine young children. Jessica is beautiful and Josh is handsome. They are well cared for, getting a good education and not missing their evil mother at all. I hope you are continuing to suffer a lousy life in prison and I continue to regret that you escaped the death penalty. The fact that you were given a life sentence 40 years without remission is a little satisfying. Knowing that you will never see your children again is even more satisfying. They are having a fine Christmas may yours be absolutely terrible. In 2014, a letter said, As usual, I have included the updated picture of your children that you will never see and hold again in your arms. Children that will never love you and only remember you as the greedy bitch that killed their daddy for money and to be with her Filipino boyfriend. Like I write every year, I never know if you will see this message. I can only hope that someone gets it to you each year. The kids are doing very well. Jessica is in her final year at high school and looking forward to going to university to doing business studies and sociology. Joshua is in his second year of high school and wants to be a computer programmer. I wonder where he gets that from. They are both very good and stable kids and we are so proud of them. Another Christmas letter from 2016 says Now I must send my annual Christmas greeting to the killer wife of Stephen Davis. Evelyn dear, I sincerely hope that you are having a miserable life in jail. Again, I include pictures of your two children that you will never meet again. They are being well educated and have a bright future in front of them. I do not know if a murderer such as you can shed a tear, but maybe seeing the kids that you once shared with Stephen might break through your greedy hard heart. Stephen would have been 50 a few days ago. Both Joshua and Jessica usually write messages to him on helium balloons, which they release on his birthday and the anniversary. 
Shortly after his passing, Margaret wrote a poem for him called Farewell, My Son, Not Goodbye. A journey for justice, a journey of faith, is now left behind me. But mine will forever be entwined with the past. A journey of justice, now done with a price. A journey where you always stayed by my side. But now it's time to put you to sleep. Knowing my son that memories are a treasure to keep. I miss you so badly and now we are one. I now have a soul when I thought it was gone. So into the future with your children we move on. Someday together my beloved son. My heart feeling heavy. My tears burn away as the sun lowered slowly over Manila Bay. I know it's time to let you free to peaceful sleep. Knowing my son, the memories are a treasure to keep. So farewell, my son, not goodbye. Mum. So that's it for this week. Please remember if you enjoy the show, or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I am thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. You can also visit the website too, www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk. Also a reminder that the podcast is on Patreon, so visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search truecrimefix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com or leave a message on the Contact Us page on the website. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.